Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hello and welcome to My Perfect Console. I'm Simon Parkin and in each episode I invite a guest to pick the five video games they would like to immortalise on their very own fictional games machine. Perhaps it was the first game they received as a birthday present or the one that so obsessed them it caused them to fail their exams or maybe it was the only thing that got them through a difficult breakup. Games, a bit like songs, often become powerfully attached to a particular moment in our lives. When we return to them, they can become warp points to the past. So join me, Simon Parkin, for my perfect console. My guest today is an English actress, pianist, singer and award-winning stand-up comedian. Born into a showbiz dynasty, the family dog appeared in an advertisement for Nissan and their cat Boris played Jonesy in Aliens. She moved to Ayanapa to work as a Christina Aguilera tribute act. After she returned to England, she began a postgraduate course at the Royal College of Music, performing stand-up in her spare time. In 2010, she graduated from the RCM and promptly won Best Newcomer at the, at the Musical Comedy Awards. Since then, she has toured extensively, performed eight solo shows at the Edinburgh Fringe and launched two hit podcasts, Mystery on the Rocks, a true crime and cocktails comedy show and the UK's official podcast for the rock group Queen. A born performer and talented mimic, her impressions of Liza Minnelli, Nadine Doris and Liz Truss routinely go viral online. And she's currently touring the UK with her latest show titled PlayStation, a nostalgic look back at growing up through the 90s. Welcome, Suze Kempner. Thanks so much for having me. I, I should say it wasn't the Royal College of Music. It was the Royal Academy of Music. Oh, the other and one. There's a big difference, and I don't know what it is other than different buildings. Oh, okay, right. Do you sometimes meet for fights, the, the two institutions? <laughs> yeah, it's my West Side Story. Yeah, little dance-offs. <laughs> Literally. But the Royal Academy of Music has a musical theatre department, and that's why we always win the dance-offs. Oh, I see. 
<laughs> so I just described you in that intro as a, as a born performer. You sort of sing, you act, you write sketches, you perform comedy and mm-hmm. you know what lands well on social media. Where do you think you're at your most comfortable? My God, um, sometimes I think I'm at my most comfortable swearing on Twitter, um, <laughs> which I don't know. There is a career to be had from that because I think that's what I'm doing, but I'm not proud of that bit. Uh, um, I'm a little bit proud, actually. (laughs) Yeah, I think I'm really good at swearing on Twitter and it's uh, a legit way of getting a lot of followers. Right, right. I guess that's helped. Although by the time this podcast comes out, maybe Twitter's dead. Yeah, right. There's always that hanging over us, isn't it? It could fall any day now. I know. So a lot of your previous shows have been going back and um, uh, reading about your previous Edinburgh shows. And it seems to be like a bit of a theme of your work is examining some of your setbacks that you've experienced. So it's like defying gravity. You were looking at a rejection you had after auditioning for the West End show Wicked. Oh, yeah. No, it was not even getting an audition for the show Wicked. So yeah, yeah. I hadn't even got to the bit where they go, no, thank you. They just go, no, thank you. We don't even want to see you for an audition. (laughs) So, yeah, what what is it that draws you back to sort of those moments of calamity in your comedy? Uh, It's it's much more interesting to hear about times people failed than when they won. Because, like, I never want to sound like Alan Partridge going, needless to say, I had the last laugh. And (laughs) it's so easy to it's so easy to go. Here's a great time. I dunked on someone on social media because I have a lot of stuff about what it's like being on Twitter um, with a sort of mid-level following. I have a lot of stuff about that because I think it's funny. But the funniest stuff is not when I've dunked on someone. It's when someone's like very, very angrily trolled me, but kind of got it right. Like there was someone who, um, there was a kid crying in the Germany-England match in the Euros 2021 during the knockouts we were fresh in Germany and this kid in a Germany shirt was crying and like that that will never happen again because that's the only time we've beaten Germany in a knockout match as far as I know like for 40 years or something and so I was running around I saw that kid crying and I I immediately yelled at the TV deal with it love we've had two for years like I just and I went oh that's awful I just that was my immediate reaction so I tweeted I'd done that I was like I'm I'm not proud of this but this is what I did people went mad and someone replied you fucking twat no wonder you're begging for coins on Twitch in your mum's back bedroom. Oh. I was like, "That's they've got me. They got that's true. <laughs> they got me good." Uh, so I put stuff like that in my show because I think that's fun. I think that's much funnier than if I went to them. Yeah, well, um, go down the park and you'll have to touch the grass. <laughs> yeah, yeah, true. Yeah, it's like so um, I think failure is more fun than triumph. <laughs> yeah, it seems to like be the the mode as well for for English British comics as well in particular. Isn't yeah. Yeah, sort of, yeah, yeah. Self-deprecating, all that. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Americans wouldn't. <laughs> no, yeah, less so, I think. So so um, PlayStation is your, your tour at the moment, and it's actually your, yeah. your second stand-up show that you've named after a video game console. So it is. is that, your yeah. last one was called Mega Drive, is that right? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's the third in a trilogy, because uh, the first one was called Supersonic 90s Kid, and then I did Mega Drive, and then I did PlayStation. And they do kind of work as uh, uh, sequels to each other, because supersonic 90s kid was quite a lot it was all it was all about it all came off how i like was so inspired by sonic as a little kid so (laughs) that's kind of like early 90s and then we've got the mid 90s when i have my mega drive and then the late 90s when i have my playstation right right. my next show is called y2k woman so okay like we're we're really getting moving forward (laughs) 
And so, so that um, you say in in PlayStation, I understand that you, your sort of argument is that you're a bit stuck in the year 1998, which was when yeah. you and your brother, who's also a comedian, Luke Kemno, you first got a console. Yeah. So what what is it about that year in particular that's that's kept you there? It was the PlayStation was so marketed as the first adult console. Like this is, it was a really cool thing to have, and there'd been a tiny bit of that with the Mega Drive, but the Mega Drive was sold on like. Look, it's like this is the first time you'll ever have an arcade quality gaming experience at home. And the PlayStation was like, this is the first time a console's been cool and for grown-ups. So when I was 13 and me and my brother got one, I was like, well, this is a very grown-up thing that's happening. I've got a PlayStation and it's the <laughs> most grown-up I've ever felt. Oh. <laughs> I haven't. So I've kind of got this thing where it's like I've never felt more grown up than when I got the PlayStation I'm having real trouble feeling like a grown up now at 38 you know <laughs> yeah it was sort of marketed in the UK at least it was marketed to people in their early 20s like club goers and things yeah. wasn't it it was just so different yeah. it was completely different we'd never seen that before had we no and the, the way it was advertised were like those adverts they hold up they're still pretty cool right right um and they were so much part of Cool Britannia, which was, you know, looking back now, it's like, wow, what a bullshit that was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so because you, for, for your poster, you've got, you've, it's like a play on one of those um, PlayStation ads, isn't it? With the girl, mm-hmm. who's, it, it was a famous director that did that, wasn't it? I can't remember who it was now. But He's called, oh, if it's the guy I'm thinking of, he's called Trevor ah something he he because he wants to come and see the show oh no he's like oh my god i talk about your advert and yeah they were they were like super groundbreaking and the mental wealth advert is this uh she's she actually she was a young scottish actor and she had her eyes cgi'd so they were further apart and huge like an alien and it's the advert was quite unsettling. There's something quite uncanny valley and Roswelly about it, uh, and she's not talking about anything to do with video games. And CGI was quite a new concept in '98 at that level. So a lot of people watched the advert and went, "Oh, Dad, I hate this. Where did they? Find- Is it real? Is it real? Like <laughs> kind of like you idiots." <laughs> because I, because at 13, I knew it wasn't real. And I knew that it was an advert for the PlayStation. I felt like, oh, yeah, I'm so I'm so part of something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah it's kind of got like a Aphex Twin vibe or something, hasn't it? So that's right. Yeah, yeah. just still. I have to say, I like saw one of uh, a Sony PlayStation ad on TV the other day, mm-hmm. and it just felt so so basic. No offense, yeah. Sony, if you're listening, <laughs> <laughs> but like it was just like, oh, here's games, blah, 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 game footage. I was like, man, when all this started off, it was so it felt so culturally exciting, and I'm a bit sad it doesn't have that anymore. That's it, yeah, yeah, it was. But this is it was the era of, and I I do get into this in the show, but make it so funny. Um, <laughs> this was like we just had new labor had come in. We had Britpop was like the coolest music in the world at that time. And the PlayStation was very much all part of that. So it felt like this new, very exciting era. I suppose it was the closest we had to like the 60s revolution. And now it's 25 years later and I look back, I go, oh no, it was, that was all complete bullshit. Like (laughs) none of that, none of the social aspect of that was true. However, um, the PlayStation, the PlayStation is kind of the realest part of that. Like it, that's endured 
um, and I still think it's cool. I still think the original PlayStation is cool. <laughs> yeah, PlayStation's um, reputation has endured in a way Tony Blair's hasn't. I would say. Yes, yeah, yeah. That was it. When in and when I was thirteen, I did used to say things like I'd obviously was taking everything on by osmosis and for the first time feeling grown up I was going like I think Tony Blair's actually a real breath of fresh air I'd go around saying things like that it's like shut up you <laughs> teenager no one wants to hear from you <laughs> <laughs> well it did it did feel like that at the time I think mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. it did yes there was lots of promise it yeah. was <laughs> all right Sue. so the the uh, premise of the podcast is I've asked you to pick the five video games you want to install in your perfect fictional console your first one is from the era that we're talking about, from, from uh, well, a little bit before, actually, from 1992. So can you tell us about this game? How did it come into your life and why do you love it so much? Oh, so we got a Master System in 92, having just been at my cousin's house playing Sonic 2. cousin they had a bit more money than us so they had a mega drive and i was blown away and there's something about being seven and seeing that aesthetic and having gameplay that felt that fast at the time that really blew my mind so i was like oh we've got to get sonic we've got to get sonic it was my dad got a master system because they were way cheaper (laughs) at the time because the mega drive was kind of phasing them out but you could get sonic too for the Master System. Yes, right, yeah. Uh, it, was a, it wasn't even a port. It was a completely different game. Like, virtually nothing was the same. However, it controlled exactly the same. Like, the Master System ports of Sonic were so... They look quite janky, but they control exactly like the Mega Drive port, which is no mean feat. Um, so, I loved that. But Sonic 2 on the Mega Drive, when we finally got that in the mid-90s, I was like... There's nothing like it. They do think it's my favourite video game of all time, even though I don't think it's the best video game of all time, obviously. Yeah, yeah. I, I think Sonic 3 and Knuckles, the, uh, you know, you lock on Sonic 3 into a Sonic and Knuckles cartridge, and that's um, that's obviously a better game, but for me, Sonic 2 is the greatest platformer of all time. <laughs> right. Yeah, because the, like, the, the moment that you first encounter it can have such a, like, effect on it like a buff on how you feel that's it it's like the songs you hear when you're 15 are the best songs you ever hear in your life yeah yeah right (laughs) right yeah yeah amazing and um, what was it so you you mentioned a little bit earlier that you in the first of this trilogy of shows you were talking about how Sonic inspired you what was Mm -hmm. can you just like explain explain that what what did you find inspiring about it I like Sonic's this weird thing where, because obviously we couldn't have video game characters speaking at that time. And in 92, all you, all I had was the game. And the game I knew best was the Master System port of Sonic 2. So I wrote fan fiction that was the whole game. But when you, like the book version of anything will have more information than the film or video game version. So he had a mentor who was a Viking called Bert the Bone Eater. There's no puns there, but seven-year-old me she she didn't realize it would be one day so he he was like trying to avenge the death of his father which i don't know where i got that from but i definitely got it from somewhere because i'd like i was there's no way i naturally came up with yeah he's going to avenge a death and it was all set ten thousand years ago but 
every element of the game was also in there. So like the the order of the levels was exactly the same. Robotnik was definitely the villain and a huge triumph at the end of that. Yeah. At the end of that fan fiction. I've checked, it isn't canon. <laughs> Do you still have that? No, my mum, my, <laughs> this is amazing. So um, my parents got divorced quite late. I was like 25, 26 and cleared out the house. And then when I came to write this show, I went, mum, where's the Sonic story I wrote in 92? Where is it? I'm going to get it for the show. And she went, oh, it will be in the attic. I'll, f- I'll go find it. She searched through the attic all day and then she came down. I'll never forget my mum sadly looking about, looking at me and going, your father must have got it in the divorce. <laughs> like, <laughs> like he'd wanted it. <laughs> it's like, mummy, obviously accidentally got thrown away. There's no way my dad went, I'd very much like to take this. <laughs> in the itemised list, it's like underneath the car. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's fan fiction. Yeah, the, the crockery, the dining room set and please can I take the masterpiece that is the adventures of Sonic the Hedgehog and Bert the Bone Eater. <laughs> so, what? Uh, tell me, what kind of kid you were? I, I'm guessing you uh, you were into singing and dancing yeah. when you were little as well. <laughs> yeah. These, so, yeah, I was seven when we were told um, by our uh, Mrs. McGregor, the teacher, was like, "Okay, it's assembly now because we had to go assembly every morning. It's assembly now. If anyone doesn't want to go to assembly, you can stay behind, but you have to." She she really sold it like this. You don't have to go to assembly, but you will have to audition to sing the solo in the Christmas concert. So I was like, yeah, fucking, I'll do that. I probably did swear actually, and oh, so and we all had to get up in front of each other, like fifteen of us, and sing once in Royal David City. Uh-huh. And I, everyone was like croaking, like oh, I can't. And I thought that's weird. Just do it. Just sing the song. So I did it. And my teacher's reaction was a little bit like I'd sounded like Celine Dion. And I know that that isn't like they overdid it. They were like, wow, wow. I think basically I was the only kid who got up and in tune just went, yeah, fine, I'll sing it. No worries. Right, right. Had confidence. Yeah, but it was really, they were they were too into it. And we have a video of me singing it. And it's not even good for a seven-year-old. It's just like, <laughs> it's just like I didn't care. Uh, so yeah, I do right. think their reaction was too big. But then they went, can we try something, please? And they got me, they brought me out and they interrupted the assembly and went, okay, now Susanna's going to sing Once in Royal David City to see if we can, she'll, she can sing it in the Christmas concert. But nobody look. So everyone had to put their heads, which is so creepy. They had to put their heads down and cover their eyes while I sang it. And this is the thing, they could have looked, it, it, what, I just wasn't self-conscious about it because I didn't know if I could sing or not. So it wasn't about giving a perfect performance. But the teachers were, like honestly, I I'm not downplaying this. How amazed the teachers were, uh, and I'm also not downplaying how good I was. I wasn't. It was not. It was just uh, some kid going once in <laughs> Anyway, but I carried on with the singing. <laughs> yeah, but it obviously, I guess, because you wouldn't have known that. Um, like now, you're sort of judging yourself as an adult and going, oh. <laughs> but like in the moment, their reaction probably had like a really profound effect on your confidence, think, yes, right? It, de- it definitely did. I don't know why they were surprised though, because I used to like write, we because we'd have story writing sessions yeah. and I would ask to read mine out. I was like, can I read mine out? I just wanted to tell everyone the, the story I'd written and not because I thought this is so good. I just wanted to share it. And I had already done that with the Sonic story. I'd read it to the whole school. Oh, you had? Like, <laughs> yeah, it took like 20 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Did they all have to cover their eyes? <laughs> no, they were all allowed to look. Oh, yeah. No <laughs> I was a bit. Yeah, they, a lot of people liked it though, because a lot of people had a had a master system or, or mega drives. <laughs> yeah, 
That's so amazing that you were essentially doing stand-up at like seven he years old yeah. with your sonic material that you've kept going. <laughs> it's true, shit. I hadn't thought of that, yeah. I've been a stand-up for 31 years. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me the, the, just quickly the story of how your cat got into the film Aliens. Oh, yeah, it's not even a good story. So it was like, it's mid-80s, the film's 86. My mum, she trains people on their horses as her job. And the, this woman who she trained owned a company that got animals for film and TV. And she said most of the, because I ended up then working for her a little bit. And she said um, that the way she always finds animals is word of mouth. So someone will go, I know someone with this little dog that's got a great face and he really responds well <laughs> to food. So she'll be like, oh, and she'll get and send photos and then get them work on a film. Right. And she said, Anna, I'm looking for a cat that's ginger all over that will hiss on camera and we're having a nightmare. My mum was like, oh, our cat definitely will. He's horrible. <laughs> <laughs> so our cat, Boris, uh, what they did, he, he was quite a friendly cat, but always on his terms and like way more than other cats, like what, to a cat degree, but times 100. And they just got another cat out of a box and he hissed it. And that's why he's so good in Aliens. You thought he was hissing at an alien, though. Oh, so. right. So they had like a <laughs> this poor other cat gets this off-screen off yeah. role. Yeah. <laughs> just being the bait. Yeah. Out of the box, show him to Boris. He would hiss perfectly every time. S somewhere there's like another family whose story is, our cat was the one that got lifted out of a box to make another cat hiss. <laughs> <laughs> he was he was very abused. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, right. Why don't we come to your your second game then, which is from uh, from a little bit after Boris has his screen debut. Yeah, his stardom. <laughs> yeah, this is in '93. What's the game, and uh, why do you love it? Oh, so it's a game from the Sonic universe, I guess. It's Doctor Robotnik's Mean Bean Machine. This is a game, it's a, a clone of uh, Puyo Puyo, which is a Japanese game, which is a little bit like Puzzle Bobble. It's, you're matching up these little beans, mm -hmm. and if you get four stuck together, the beans are freed, because Dr. Robonic's trying to trap all the beans in his mean bean machine. So they've <laughs> vaguely made it Sonic related. Sonic's not in it at all, which is annoying to me. If he was, I think he'd be in a number one. But it's my favourite puzzle game ever. It's also so hard. And when I mastered it, I was like, this must. This is what it must feel like to be a great artist. <laughs> I forgot that they put all that uh, narrative like yes, structure around it. It's so like... much narrative. And every level you're trying to defeat another one of Robotnik's droids. And uh -huh. every droid has got its own personality. There's one called... Um, a squealer I think and it's like a pig droid on wheels and it's like you're gonna sizzle like bacon all their jive talk is very very bad <laughs> do, they, do they ever explain why Dr Robotnik wants the beans he just wants to trap them because Robotnik's kind of like Robotnik is a Nazi um, and in the Sonic cartoon, occasionally they dress him up like Gaddafi, which I think is <laughs> quite funny to revisit as an adult. But it's the Sonic cartoon. He would just have this great, um, this great need to be a dictator. He wanted to uh, uh, rule over everything, trying to subjugate the beans. That's it. Yeah, like this whole Sonic universe appeals to me more than the Mario universe because there's 
more political bent. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose, yeah, Robotnik's like moustache is quite Stalin-esque as well, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's sort of like mm. that big smile over the moustache. Absolutely, yeah. Having the time of his life, not realising that all dictatorships get brought down in the end. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. So, so let's go back to your story. So you have this like a you have this amazing audition at school, and you're reading out your stories. So do you at, at this stage are you thinking I want to be a musician when I when I grow up? And what was no, your dream? No, I didn't want to be a singer. I wanted. It was only when I got to literally thirteen, fourteen that I went. I know what I want to do with my life. I wanted to present um, Top Gear, and I got really into cars when I was. 13 and I used to have a subscription to what car magazine yeah (laughs) and I used to get um Parker's guide which was like a used car price guide that went back 10 years or something so you could look up I've got a Toyota Starlet from 1990 what's it Mm. worth in in poor good and excellent condition and what was the list price new and I used to carry this around with me Parker's guide and to the point where my parents we went to uh, like some it was someone's house party where there'd be grown-ups and kids and they were like leave Parker's price guide in the car because I would go around talking to people's talking to like the dads going right. what car do you drive and what's the mileage and I'd tell them how much their car would be worth auction yeah like what the what a strange thing to do I think I used to think that this may be interesting to adults <laughs> <laughs> my parents were like can you leave Parker's price guide in the car please but I had a lot of it I could it got to the point where I was like I could recognize any British car on the roads and I could give a vaguely accurate idea of what it would be worth at auction <laughs> oh my gosh it's weird isn't it that is that's quite unusual yeah but I wanted to present car shows I was so fascinated with cars right right <laughs> so that's so you've been watching like Top Gear and you were like I want to do that mm. job mm-hmm I'm one of the people who preferred old Top Gear. I see, okay. When new Top Gear came along, people were like, it's amazing, it's so entertaining. And this is before it got all like, it's just Jeremy Clarkson going, hey, I wonder how many bad words I can say in this week's episode. This was when it was just a silly car show with challenges and that. I was like, no, no, no. I want to hear about how the Rover 75 is going to change everything. That's what I want to hear about. I don't want to see them seeing if they can buy cars for 100 quid yeah no no thank you <laughs> i reckon if you'd have met the right producer like age 13 they would have found your little spot on that show <laughs> it's sort of like kids 
This little girl who knows the price of every used car. I could see that working. Oh, that would have been amazing. And I looked, I was one of those kids that looked 10 when they were 14 as well. Mm. So it would have been even weirder. Yeah. And then I could have sung. Yeah. <laughs> Once in a while, David City. Yeah, here you go, guys. This is my, this is, uh, my party piece. <laughs> so tell me, how, how do you get from having that dream to to your stint in Iron Apple, which is uh, something you've written about before, yeah. but it's such a good story. I'm going to get you to oh, tell again, I'm afraid. Well, so it, it all... I did my A-levels and I wanted to act then. I got really into films at that point. I got really into like Scorsese films. <laughs> and I wrote a screenplay that I was like, Scorsese's going to make it. Me uh-huh. and Robert De Niro are going to start and we're both going to win Oscars. That's how I felt about it. Um, and I was going to win an Oscar for writing and acting. And we sent it to him and he never responded, which I think was an oversight <laughs> on his part. Um, but I... I then was like, oh, it's obvious what I want to do. I want to be an actor. Um, there was... We didn't have the kind of family money to send me to drama school. That wasn't an option. So I went and did a degree that, you know, you could you could go and do and just pay tuition fees the regular university way. So I did a BA in script writing for film and TV and spent the entire degree just being like, and then when I leave, I'm going to be an actor. And that's hard if you haven't got a drama school in your CV. You, it's hard to get a good agent. And so I was then taking any gig I could get. And the first professional gig I got was three months in Ayanapa as Christina Regulera tribute. So that's why I was there. It wasn't a case of like, it's always been my dream to perform mm-hmm. as Christina Regulera. No, they sent me over there and they was like, this is what you'll be wearing. This is what you'll be singing. Yeah. Keep bleaching that hair. <laughs> oh, so you, uh, you weren't wearing a wig, you were bleaching your hair. Yeah, I was absolutely... I always say, I, I say in my acts, like I was bleaching my hair so much that my hair felt like kettle crisps. Oh, no. It's horrific. Yeah, because you can see my natural colour, I'm very dark. Yeah. And yeah, it was, it was not a good, it was not a good way to treat my hair. I <laughs> should have been bald. <laughs> and so you were, you were, they were, I think I remember you saying you would get in a minibus each sort of evening yes. and then they'd, they'd deliver you to either like a hotel bar or maybe yeah. like a little pub or something and you'd do yeah, your Yeah, the, they'd, they'd put you in, they'd, they, you'd get the PA system out the back, they'd help you carry it in and you'd set it up yourself while they drove another act to the next bit and another act uh. to the next bit. And so, yeah, you would set it up, run off, get changed in a toilet and then come out and do two 45-minute sets as Christina Aguilera or if you were the Britney tribute as Britney. So... It was like that. And it was not a nice job. And the guys running the company, it was definitely like underhand stuff going on. The company was almost certainly a tax dodge. Oh, they were, People were going missing. I, I don't think oh, they... Oh, gosh. I don't think they were being killed. I think they were just people in the company. They were like, no, you won't do. And they'd just chuck on a plane and send them home. Right. And by the time... So when I started, the company was in its first year. And when I started, there were like over 40 tributes. By the time I left, I think we were in single figures wow okay but i really clung on in there i was like i can't fail i can't fail yeah and then it got to the got to three months in i went no, i can't do this anymore i have to go <laughs> how were they were they um were they paying you well or or not <laughs> i had a mouthful of tea and i needed a spit take then at the idea of <laughs> the money being good no it was like it was 40 pounds for a gig obviously your accommodation was covered but the accommodation was no air con full of cockroaches like it was gross luckily i'm not squeamish about cockroaches and bugs i'm only i'm i'm terrified of spiders so luckily they weren't we didn't have spiders in out there but they were in the houses uh but you'd occasionally see a tarantula on the wall of like a building outside and i lived in fear of one of them 
swinging by. Yeah, jeez. <laughs> but I'd get rid of cockroaches for other tribute acts. It was very glamorous. <laughs> <laughs> Do you feel like it was a worthwhile experience? Did you, did you gain anything from it? Definitely, because nothing will ever be that horrendous ever again. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> no, it was sort of amazing. Like all the tribute acts, we all knew exactly what the job was and that this was not good and we'd laugh yeah. about it. And we all got on great. And like I was 22. I was spending all day at the beach with new friends that I really liked. I wasn't living at home. And at night I was getting to sing. And when it was a night off, we'd all go and do karaoke together. Like it was, it was honestly, it was a great three months, but I was skint. Like I was so skint. All I had to eat, I had no money. And all I had to eat was, a, there was a full jar of Nutella that I'd been saving and I went, well, I'm just going to eat that. And that's what I ate that day was a whole jar of Nutella oh, with no. a spoon. Oh. And then went out and sang in the evening. <laughs> oh, I love that you've been saving that. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was like, I'm going to have to break into the Nutella after We're all, all. going to crack into the Nutella girls when we're <laughs> desperate. <laughs> oh, dear. Okay, let's uh, let's come to your third game, Suze, um, from 1997, a fighting game. Do you want to tell us about this one? So it's uh, Tekken 3. Tekken 3 is, I, the Tekken series, uh, they're my favourite fighting game series. I've played Tekken, you know, I've played very new incarnations of Tekken, but because they're not my Tekken, even though I know they're better, my favourite's still Tekken 3. So I got really good with Ling Xiaoyu on Tekken 3, and that's why it's my favourite, because I wasn't button bashing with her. I knew a bunch of different moves and several combos with her, and it got to the point where I my friends I could kind of beat any of them at Tekken 3 and I love I always like with Tekken the storylines that every character has they're all so epic and they're all so convoluted to explain why they're in a fighting competition (laughs) (laughs) yeah I think most fighting games are like that, but that's yeah. the one. That's what I really like about Tekken. It's like this environmental activist had to join a fighting competition. This the devil had to join a fighting competition. <laughs> <laughs> I remember as well, like with those PlayStation Tekken games, the the full motion videos that would play, like like you <gasps> yeah. say, to introduce the story, and then when you beat the game to to finish that story, yeah. they were like such a reward, weren't they? Oh, for a so player, epic! You... It made it so that yeah, like like you say, you want to finish with you want to finish the game with every character. There's like a character called it's, I think it's King Two, not the not the first King. Uh, he's He's a res- ex-wrestler and he wears a leopard's mask. Yeah. And he's like friends with neighbourhood kids. When he wins the fighting contest, the neighbourhood kids will like welcome him home and he's like so happy under his mask. But I think his face is covered because it's all disfigured or something. But the kids all accept him. Oh. And I remember when I was a kid thinking like, that's amazing, this should be a film. <laughs> <laughs> Let me ride to Scorsese. Hello, yeah. <laughs> mate, have you thought about doing this? <laughs> I remember it being. I, I remember when Tekken Three came out, it being a really big deal. I got <clears throat> I got a copy from our local um, local game shop in South London where I lived, and um, 
it was just where like all of the local kids would get their games and they i think they sold it to us like a day or two early because but they had it under the cover under the under the counter it like turned up earlier in the week and they were like if you hand us your money we'll put it in a bag and give it to you so oh in my in my memory it's like associated with this illicit transaction that's amazing <laughs> that's the sort of thing that if i was a teenager i'd have been like this is the greatest moment of my life right right and and also when i'm 38 <laughs> great Tekken 3 good choice so yeah so tell me you, you come back from from Ayanapa and then what what happens what happens next so that was 2007 and I was still really wanted to perform I was trying to get into drama school and then I would work to earn the money to go on like a postgrad so a postgrad would cost like 10 grand and I was like I'll do it I'll, I'll earn the money to go and I was trying to get into various drama schools and not getting into any of them and that went on for a couple of years at the same time I was I worked as a cruise ship pianist for piano and I am a dog shit pianist I'm (laughs) such a bad pianist like I can but like I'm dog shit for a pianist I'm not dog shit for someone who's never touched a piano before right Um, right to people who don't know music that well they're like wow she's great but I, I can accompany myself no one would want to hear me play the piano on my own so I was a cruise ship pianist and singer um for piano of often on between like 2007 and 2009 what were you singing by the way oh everything because i had to do four 45 minute sets a night it was so long so i was doing oh my god yeah it was a lot a lot of singing so That's so long it was a lot of like you know jazz standards and um adele was quite big then not like now she is who's heard of her but like adele was kind of a new big artist at the time and right. i was um doing Adele songs and then I do something from like Carousel the Musical and then I do a number from Les Mis and you just mix them up and, and I always finish the night with Don't Let the Sun Go Down on Me right? because people we, like everyone knew the song and they'd all at the end go oh I think we just saw a great show so it didn't matter what gone before <laughs> yeah <laughs> but yeah that was so I was doing that and auditioning for drama schools and finally I in 2008 I got again off the back of a website uh, which advertised for acting and seeing jobs. I got into a show called News Review, which is the longest running live sketch show in the world. At that time, it had been running nearly 30 years. So it was 2008, the summer, and they have a rolling cast. Every eight weeks, they change the cast of four, and you do political sketches that are very current, and you rehearse them all week, and then you do the show Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And it's not not well paid, but what, a, what an experience. And I did it, and I went, I love this so much. I never want to do anything else. I just want to do, I just want to make people laugh, do comedy and do silly sketches. And there were silly songs that we did as well. And someone who came to see it, she said, she was like, you haven't trained. You should go to drama school. Because I said to her, like, oh, I'm inviting agents, but they're not coming to this. She went, you should just go to drama school. Um, I said, I can't get into any. She went, have you tried to get into RAM? She's Royal Academy of Music. And I was like, of course I haven't. It's the best one. And she went, because she'd gone there. And she said, no, no, I think Triram, I think you'd suit there. Which was really interesting. I'd never thought about suiting a drama school. Uh-huh. So I auditioned and was recalled. And then when I got in, I like, I was like, is it real? I couldn't believe it. What a great moment. It, it was. I genuinely, um, genuinely one of the like great moments of my life was opening the envelope and seeing, we're delighted to accept you onto the, course in september this was february oh that's when you had seven months to earn 10 grand (laughs) oh to pay for it yeah 
that's it. Yeah, I had to pay for the course. Little did yeah. I know, there were people who went on the course and were like, I, I haven't paid. They're letting me pay as and when. I was like, wow, I guess you could just never pay and they can't take away what you've learned here. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I was, that's when I was working uh, in the cattery for this woman who got my cat for aliens back in the day so she ran a cattery on her premises so I was doing that in the day at night I was driving dogs in a van up to Oliver and being a sta- uh, an animal handler on stage I'd occasionally join her for like advert shoots for Sheba and that kind of thing I ended up and I did it off and on through drama school as well like working on Legally Blonde and I ended up working on the Danish girl there's a little dog mm-hmm. in the Danish girl and when I was seeing the Danish girl getting filmed, I was like, I think this might end up being the greatest film of all time. And now it's like, it's aged so poorly. It's such, it's not good, it's bad. But uh, it's funny when you're on set, you really can't tell whether something's going to be brilliant or not. Yeah. So I, I yeah, I've, there's several things that I've worked on just as an animal handler, seen them being filmed and gone, I think this might be amazing. And it's come out and gone, well, this isn't very good. <laughs> she Abbott, though, spot on. Do you, just to go back to your audition, do you remember what you did to get in to Ram? The Academy, it was two contrasting songs and two contrasting speeches. And I did, I do know exactly what I did. I sang Sondheim's I Remember from Evening Primrose and then the not contrasting remotely enough song, um, See I'm Smiling from Jason Robert Brown's The Last Five Years. They use the same vocal qualities. Um, they're both sad and a little bit angry they're like they they're not different at all i was like these are very different but the contrasted speeches were like an angry schoolgirl who'd just seen midsummer night's dream and was telling her teacher like i hated it it was shit it was crap and it's like quite a funny speech so i was doing that and then the other speech i was doing was from a play called come back to the five and dime jimmy dean jimmy dean where it's like this james dean fan who has who's been lying for 20 years that her son is James Dean's son and she had sex with him one night when he was when he shot I think giant in their town which was true and it ends up being the the end of that play is it turns out it was her friend her her friend who used to dress like James Dean who's now a trans woman and Uh. they're still good friends um and within the play what a strange choice of monologue I chose for that. <laughs> yeah. So it was me going, yes, and then James Dean kissed me again. <laughs> it's good. That's a big swing, I think, for an audition. It is, like it, it is, yeah. But that's how I that's, got in. It worked, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, Suze, why don't we come to your, your fourth game then, which is from also from 1997. Can you tell us about this one? Oh, yeah. So it's uh, Tomb Raider 3. three i played that quite soon which i think is 98 as well yeah i think so i think so I think yeah. you're right yeah. um i played that quite soon after getting the playstation and this was the first playstation game that really blew me away i couldn't believe it i hadn't played at this point 
like Mario 64 or Zelda on the yeah. N64. We just didn't have one. And so this was the first game I saw that, despite actually being vaguely linear, was this open world that you always dreamed of having. When you were a little kid playing a platformer, you're like, imagine if a video game was just open world and you could run anywhere. And this was the first time I'd seen this when we got to Mario 3. Um, and I just thought it was... Um, it was the closest I got to playing a movie. <laughs> the character of Lara Croft, I, re I was very inspired by her because at the time I was trying to be an Olympic gymnast. Um, as bad as I am at piano is nowhere near how bad I was at gymnastics, even though I, was per I persevered till I was 16 and then gave up because like, yeah, I'm not going to be an Olympic gymnast. But the, so I would like do the gymnastics part of, because she could backflip and, and jump real far. I go, yeah, yeah this is actually helping with my gymnastics. Uh, and I just found like how adventurous she was and how uh, strong-willed she was. I found that very exciting, even though I have since found out that the reason they made Lara Croft like a sexy woman is so that male players of the game would want to protect her and want to play it more and find right. her hot, I guess, with her triangle boobs. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I'm sure that's yeah. partly true. But as well, I think it, she was an inspiring, she was an inspiring moment, wasn't it? Having a protagonist, a, a woman protagonist yeah, uh, yeah, for well, the first yeah, time. I guess they'd kind of, they'd done it um, in... They had done this before. There were female leads in games, weren't there? But like Probably, Metroid yeah, in the 80s. But it was yeah. like a big reveal. And uh, she was a woman all along. <laughs> yeah, like, oh, okay. Wow. She's, male players of the game. Yeah, she's strong and a woman. Can you believe it? <laughs> yeah. Can you believe it, guys? Like 80s male players throwing down their NES controllers. Going, Fuck you. You tricked me. I've been tricked. It's a trap. Um but yeah, to, Tomb Raider for a for a thirteen fourteen year old girl who wanted to be as cool and cool and hot as Lara Croft, that was very inspirational. I think that's why I played it so much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so let's go back to your story. So you you uh, graduate from your post grad degree and go, sort of dive straight into the world of comedy at that point. Um, pretty much, do you, you, yeah, you, you get the this um, award for the best newcomer at the Musical Comedy Awards. Um, mm -hmm. What did that feel like? Did you feel like you you found your path now? And gymnastics was off, Top Gear was off. So that's, yeah, no young. more gymnastics. Yeah, well, yeah, I I started comedy just before I went to the Royal Academy, thinking, well, I'll do this until I go, mm. and then obviously I'll probably just be doing musical theatre after that. But I carried on doing comedy all the way through drama school, and without musical theatre training and without comedy I don't think I'd be doing what I do now yeah. uh, the two things have kind of both helped together but yeah when I yeah I entered the musical comedy awards and I used to do terrible song parodies at the piano I used to do like I would I wouldn't do this now I think this is very low art <laughs> not like now when I go eh, video games um <laughs> but I used to do like I used to do like Mariah Carey's hero, but I'm singing about how footballers always cheat on their wives. Ha ha ha. And that, it was that level of stuff. Um, yeah. And I, yeah, they named me best newcomer because I was a very new act at the time. And I got to play at the final at the Charing Cross Theatre and that was cool. Oh, nice, um, yeah. But yeah, I, I kind of carried on and then you find your comedy voice as you go along. I mean, in comedy now 14 years and now I wouldn't, like gradually I stopped doing the parody songs and did original songs and gradually I got rid of the original songs and the keyboard went by 2016 and now it's it's stand up with singing but it, I don't write any songs I'm proud of it um I do stand up about singing so 
in my in PlayStation, there's a like a I do stuff about how the God Save the Queen is a terrible national anthem. It's the worst one, and there's a rendition of Star Spangled Banner that you couldn't ever do God Save the Queen in in that way. Right? Um, yeah, yeah. It's so it's more stand up, and like I've done entire routines about the songs we used to sing at school. Yeah. And so now it's stand up about singing with singing rather than yeah. Yeah, yeah. rather than musical comedy as we would think of right, it. Right, yeah. <laughs> Do you remember the the first time you walked on stage and you didn't have the keyboard there was that the big because I guess after a while that can become like a like a bit of a crutch prop, right? Yeah. I and I would I would stand behind the keyboard and whenever I was talking and the talking bits got longer in between every song. Um, and I've heard Billy Connolly and Victoria Wood say the same. They started out doing songs and then they would gradually, the talking got longer. So what I'm saying is I'm as good as them. Ha ha. No, <laughs> but I would, I would grip the handles of the stand the keyboard was on. And every time I was talking, I'd be holding those handles. Yeah. So when you get rid of the keyboard, there's nothing to stand behind and nothing to grip except the mic. And yeah, it took, it did take some getting used to, but I'm glad I did that. Like I, I, I was finding the keyboard a pain in the ass to like take to gigs, so. <laughs> and I'm quite lazy, so yeah, <laughs> it was worth it for that. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> you've you've talked a bit in your your stand up about having a, a younger brother who's also a stand up comic, and yeah. I know that you are exaggerating for your rivalry <laughs> for comic effect, but but how does you know how much of that is true? How does it feel having someone that you're so close to also trying to do the same stuff as you? Yeah, he's. I mean, he started after I've been doing comedy about three or four years and we're very different with what we do although we we both we kind of have the same skill set he trained in musical theatre and was very successful in it um, in a way that I never was like he was a lead in Les Mis and Avenue Q South Pacific and then gave it up to do stand-up and he does like quite sketch based stand-up where he'll be like hey look it's Louis Theroux and John Bishop in Downton Abbey and stuff like that because he does he's impressions very, as well, like, like you do. Yeah, he's an yeah. amazing impressionist. Uh, yeah. Like, way better than me impressions. He has a, I'm, I always say, like, I'm the woman of four voices. <laughs> um, <laughs> he, he could do impressions of, like, tons and tons of people, really good ones. And so our, our style of comedy is very different. But he succeeded immediately in a way that I just didn't. His face just seemed to fit. And he found his niche very quickly. And he got a top agent very quickly and yeah well it was it was really hard yeah. you is you can you can be very proud of um a sibling and want them to succeed while still being like god it cuts like a knife but mm. i can't get and I, like it felt like i couldn't get any of it it's just got easier over the years cuz i have managed to forge my own path so now i can like we can enjoy each other's shows Whereas I would go to his Edinburgh shows and be like, oh, it's great. And look at all the people here. And then I'd go and do my show to like seven people and just be like, what am I doing? Am I a joke? Um, am I a joke to the industry? And you just have to believe that, nah, you're not. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah. Did you ever like, um, did, you, have you, did you ever have a conversation with him about the, about those feelings and stuff? Or yeah, you just... definitely. No, it, it would come up and they're, they're quite like, they're quite hard conversations to have because he couldn't relate because he'd had so much success in musical theatre when he left drama school and then had so much success in comedy when he started comedy. So he just, I don't think he could ever quite understand where I was coming from. And also, it's kind of, it's true. It's not his problem. Sure, it's not no. his fault that his weird looking sister couldn't succeed in comedy. 
But it did get to a point where I was like, I just never will. But I like doing it and I like my small fan base that was growing a tiny bit at every Edinburgh. And then it all seemed to click with the 2018 Edinburgh show I did, Supersonic 90s Kid. People came along because they loved Sonic and then stayed for future shows. They would go, oh, it wasn't what I was expecting and I loved, and I really liked it. And then they'd be back next year with two friends. And then PlayStation, obviously it was a break for the pandemic. I had quite a lot of online luck during the pandemic. Like yes. a lot of videos did very well. Yeah, I was streaming on Twitch quite a lot and building an audience there. And a lot of those people came so that it, I got to do PlayStation last year and we had to turn people away every day, Boom. which is such a nice feeling. Not to say, go away. <laughs> it's so nice to fill a room what felt like easily every day. And I was, there was, there were a couple of times I went, oh God, it's been too easy. And then I, you have to kind of go, no, no, it's not. Because in 2016, you would show up to do your show in a cave and then set everything up, which took 15 minutes. And then um, one of the staff would come out and go, there's no one here. And there would be relief that it was no one rather than two people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like So when you've gone through that, then like you kind of have, if you then carry on after that, you you ought to eventually get somewhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> if anyone listening is going, I can't build an audience, well, just keep going till you can or until you can't be bothered to try and do that anymore because it's horrible. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's great. Yeah, what a great <laughs> testament to your tenacity, I think. And yeah, wonderful. <laughs> Obnoxious arrogance. <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. All right, Suze, let's come to your, your fifth and your final game. Can you tell us about <laughs> this one? Um, okay, so this is Abe's Odyssey. Uh, I know every game is for the PlayStation and Mega Drive, but my two shows On have been called Mega Drive and PlayStation. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, I've, I've, keep, yeah, I've got to build the brand, you know. Um, <laughs> Abe's Odyssey is um, another game which has like a beautiful story that really appealed to me as a kid. Uh, so he's a, a little guy and they're sort of enslaved in a factory. His, 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 um, I guess you'd say his race. They're, they're enslaved in a factory that's run by a big conglomerate and he's trying to save them all um, because they're going to get turned into food. And it's very, the graphics I think are very beautiful. It's a, a, a side-on platformer puzzle and you um, it doesn't scroll. It's every, you go to different screens. And yeah, so it's a puzzle game and a platformer. And I just love the character of Abe. I thought he was... Um, just the right amount of ugly and cute. Mm. Yes. And, you know, we all love ugly, cute dogs. That's He's got that thing going on. And, yeah, it's kind of got this nice anti-capitalist message that I guess appealed to me yeah. then and now. <laughs> yeah, he's sort of a slave, isn't he, trying to work his way out of the system. Yes. So, yeah. That's it, yeah, and save his friends. And you have to save at least half of them to get the good that's ending. It. Otherwise, you still get killed. <laughs> <laughs> brutal. That's it. Yeah, it's quite a brutal game. <laughs> and was this the? Was this sort of the the last of the PlayStation games that you were that you were playing at that time? Did you get a PlayStation Two soon after this? We did have a PS Two. Yeah, but I then sort of went to uni and would 
I, I would always return back to these old games yeah. that I loved so much and still do when I play new games now. I'm like, yeah, but I'm not a teenager anymore, so I'm never going to find this the greatest game ever. Yeah. I also can't, I, I find it hard to commit to like 50 hours of gameplay. So um, I think that's why my favourite area of gaming would always be the mid to late yeah. 90s. Yeah. <laughs> And I'm sure there's many listeners punching the air along with you right now. <laughs> um, all right, so, so let's go through these. You picked for your perfect console Sonic 2, yeah. Dr. Robotnik's Mean Bean Machine, Tekken 3, Tomb Raider 3 and Abe's Odyssey. Yes. Very nice slice of 90s <laughs> gaming there. <laughs> there we go. Um, okay, so we need a brand name to market your console to the world. What would you like to call it? Is it? Oh, um, can we call it Kempness? Kempness, yeah. Kempness, K-E-M-P-N-U-S. N-U-S. I think that it, it's got quite a nice 80s, 90s feel to it. it, it and it's like the, the Magnus Odyssey. Um, no, that's Magnavox, isn't it? Not Magnus. Anyway, Kempness, like Magnus. Kempness, yeah, I like <laughs> it. Cool. Um, well, Susan, I know you've got to go because you've got to rush off to an audition. But I've got to audition for a Dolmio advert. Yeah. <laughs> but just before you do that, I want to. I just want to circle back to something you said right at the start when I asked you where you're most comfortable, and you said uh, you said arguing with trolls on Twitter. Yes, yeah, <laughs> swearing at them. I think like I think lots of people will not be able to relate to that um, because uh, you know <laughs> arguing it's on hor- uh, it is horrible. It is horrible. Yeah. So how like why do you why have you decided to sort of feed the trolls? Yeah, I am feed. I guess I'm feeding them. Although nothing nothing makes me happier than me writing to one of them. You just made that up in your head, and then knowing that I and then muting them, knowing I've ruined their day. Yeah, like yeah. you could. You can't defeat these people with words on Twitter, but you can ruin their afternoon. And that, I think I like that. And I like people going, oh, they're really annoyed with you. That's cool. So I think that's it. Like yeah. People can live vicariously through me. And it's something I could never do with school bullies. So I'm doing it now. Right, yeah, <laughs> with yeah. Twitter, with Twitter bullies. I am become yeah. what I wanted to be in. <laughs> being. How, do you, how do you stop yourself from being... Uh, like downcast by those interactions though do you do you have any techniques to protect yourself the, what i will say is twitter is not real and it's very easy to believe that if you are a someone who's make like i make videos as nadine dorries and liz truss and and people go oh yes this is this this is amazing this is this will bring down the government and it's very easy I've seen people start to believe it. Uh-huh. It's not actually activism. It makes you feel better and it makes some people around you who see the video feel better. And that is good. Like, I like people who see me do a stupid Dean Dory's video to go, ah, oh, I was in a bad mood and now I feel good. And like, cool. But it's not actually activism. So I think as long as you remember that Twitter isn't real, it makes it less painful. Right. Uh, although arguably Twitter is responsible for Donald Trump being president. But yeah, it played a role. But um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, I think I think you're right. Lowering the stakes in that way is quite helpful psychologically, isn't it? Lowering the stakes is exactly the right way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, Suze, it's been so lovely to meet you and to hear your choices and, and you. to hear your story. Thank you for sharing Thank it with you. us. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much to my guest, Suze Kempner. 
uh, the brilliant Suze Kemner, who is right now on tour. So the week that this comes out, um, she is playing around Scotland. Uh, she's in Glasgow at the stand on the 1st of June, Edinburgh at the stand on the 3rd of June, uh, the stand in Newcastle on the 4th, and then she heads to Maidenhead in Kent for the 15th. And then on the 8th of July, you can see her at the Wardrobe Leeds. Uh, this is, of course, her show PlayStation that we talked about there, which has had wonderful reviews. And I know some people that have been to see it. I haven't got to see it myself, but uh, the people I know who have been to see it have had a great time. So get yourself along to Susie's show if she's coming to a town near you. Uh, she, of course, talks a lot about 1998, which was the year that she and her brother got the PlayStation, the first adult console, as she puts it. 1998 was a brilliant year for video games. It is indisputable. I think it was perhaps uh, one of, if not the best year for video games. So many games that I love from 1998. So anyway, if you feel the same way or if you are much younger than that and weren't playing games in 1998, but are, are curious to see what all the fuss is about about that year then go along to Suze's show thank you so much to her for coming on the show for talking to me for sharing her memories I love that uh, she picked five games from quite a narrow little period that was obviously uh, when she loved video games so much from starting with Sonic 2 and then all the way through to Abe's Odyssey on the PlayStation. So one of I think that's the first time we've really just had uh, five games from two consoles, the Mega Drive and the PlayStation or the Genesis, if you're listening in the States. But yeah, so good. So good to hear all of her stories and great to see the success that she's enjoying at the moment. If you would like to write to me with suggesting any guests or providing any feedback, you can do so at myperfectconsole at gmail.com. Thank you to those of you who do. I do read all of your emails. I get quite a lot of them now, so I don't always respond to every email, but uh, they all do get read. And if you're suggesting uh, people, then very often I do write to them. If you have written to me a few months ago and haven't had your guest on yet, uh, that just might be that um, uh, we've recorded and the show hasn't come out yet. I've got sort of quite a few shows lined up, or maybe they're booked in for a conversation, or maybe they're agent just didn't get back to me. That sometimes happens. But uh, yeah, I will keep trying for, for people that uh, we would really like to have on the show and that keep getting suggested. So please continue to do so. If you would like to support My Perfect Console financially, then you can do so right now by going to Acast Plus. You'll become an early access supporter there. And for just £3 a month, you'll get your episodes uh, a little early and ad free as well. Hop along to Twitter, follow My Perfect Console with the O's removed from console and you can uh, read about the games that guests have picked uh, for their consoles and also get previews of who's coming up next. At some point in the summer or in the next few weeks, I am going to be launching uh, some new community features for My Perfect Console. I've got some really exciting things that I think people will like. I'm not going to talk too much about them now, but suffice to say, I think in the second half of this year, we are going to be doing a bit of a console off between the different machines that uh, my guests have put together to crown the best console of the year at the end of 2023 and uh, you'll have a chance to vote on those uh, in the knockouts and and then you know we'll f we'll discover 
whether Ronan Farrow's Ronan Cube is going to beat Phil Wang's Wang Cube, for example. <laughs> and uh, at the end of the year, we'll be crowning the, the best of the year. So look out for, for some of that. That's just one of the things that we'll be doing later in the year. Uh, but yeah, be launching that stuff later in the summer. And I will give you more details as and when we're ready to do so. OK, I will be back again next week with a wonderful guest Uh, Every guest is wonderful, but uh, yeah, next week we've got a really good one, a really good chat that I'm excited to share with you with uh, a very, um, a very, what's the word, prestigious writer, friend of mine who uh, has contributed to films and TV shows and and also many high profile video games. So yeah, tune in for that. I'll be back then with that guest with their five games and with one more perfect console. Till then, goodbye. March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale, starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.